Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. Ready to triple your creative production speed? Seltra is a software for scaling creative and content in the cloud. In Seltra, brands can create and launch all the variations they need for successful campaigns. More at Seltra.com. That's C-E-L-T-R-A dot com. Welcome to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. My name is Ko Im. I'm the community editor at Adweek, and David Greiner could not be with us today, but we do have a special guest who will be joining us today and also at Brand Week, uh, which is this week. And it's going to be a special one with lots of awards for our brand Genie and masterclasses on several interesting topics. And then, of course, um, as we told you last week, um, the week is free for those who have been furloughed or laid off. Um, we know this has been a tough year for many folks. And um, what I like to do, um, you know, when things are kind of in transition is to really focus my energy on learning and growing. And so on the fifth day is kind of the career track. And so um, joining me now on the podcast is Walter Gear the third. Welcome, Walter. Hey, Carl. Thank you so much. I'm super excited to be here. So thank you. Yes, and it's been um, a big year for you. Um, you were recently named Executive Creative Director of Experience Design for VML INR. Um, how's that going so far? It's been amazing. It's been amazing. It's most certainly everything I signed up for and uh, could have hoped for. Um, it's fun. I, I just can't complain. I'm knee deep in so much, uh, but um, we're doing some amazing things. Yeah, um, and you know the day five that we're talking about, um, you're going to be speaking um, really about how to how to look at the changes that have come in the industry. So from where you sit now, um, what's 2020 been like? Um, and where do you kind of see it going? 2020 has been a movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I see this sure. to my boss too. It's like I'm in a weird movie and the music is playing slowly. 
<laughs> oh my god! And it's like the movie I haven't seen yet, though. So I'm just like I'm trying to figure it out as as as, as we go, like both from a, like pandemic and crazy kind of stuff to like career stuff for me. It's mm-hmm. and like I got and I also got to say I thank you guys so much for even having me as as part of Brand Week. Like I'm I got to be honest. I look at the rest of the list of the people. I'm like C suites, and then there's me. Uh, so it's like this amazing group of individuals. But I guess. To answer your your question, I mean, it's interesting when when we talk about kind of like how, like what's changing. I mean, clearly, I think everyone and their mother goes pivots straight to like the typical how we interact and how we engage in digital and digital for brands. Um, but I think it's it's more than that. And what's more interesting to me is is watching how brands communicate with people right now, right? It's like, who's being authentic and who's not. And for those that are trying to be authentic, or at least being out kind of saying the right thing, um, you know, like, are you looking internally first, right? Because we have seen some, some brands who are out saying this, but then like their house is not all together as of yet. So it's, um, it's been an interesting place to, to be in a space to watch, kind of grow and I and I do feel like we've grown so much over the past six, seven or, or, or so months. Yeah, some of the um, turbulence that um, you mentioned, you know, at least for me, include social justice. And I was, you know, um, with my other kind of community leading um, an anti-racism discussion. And a lot of that discussion centered around, um, you know, fixing our own kind of house and relationships first too. So I definitely... Um, no, you know, it's, it's been, it's been rocky for everybody to kind of navigate the changes while we're having these bigger discussions. And, um, I, I want to kind of ask, you know, at the beginning of the year, um, my colleague who, you know, well, Doug Zanger, um, our agency's editor, um, wrote kind of a little profile on you when you were at TBWA about, um, how you were talking about ageism too. Um, and, you wanted to weigh in on that. Um, have you seen that conversation kind of continue at all during throughout the pandemic and while we're having social justice conversations? Um, that's a really good question. I mean, not not so much, right? Here's the thing: the the biggest problem with the world as a whole is we we have been in this state of wanting things and like we get things immediately right it's like this like our attention is so short now because of technology um Mm -hmm. and and it it seems to be the same thing with issues right like the i i have diarrhea of the mouth at times so i kind of you know say whatever that was a post i made that ended up going viral about you know it being bullshit um the kind of like the 40 under 40s and 30s under 30 awards um but you know, it, it seemed like it bubbled up. It was a co- you know conversation for for a bit, and then died out. And and it's like, you know, you look to what's going on now, and the hope is that it, it's not the same, right? We, you know, now that we're all home and kind of stuck here and kind of forced to to watch everything that's going on, I think that people have been given a voice, uh, whether they use it or not is, is is up to them. But like, most certainly, there are the few that are making a lot of noise, and and the hope again is like that it's. You know, this time, this moment isn't forgotten. So to your question, yeah, I think that people kind of forgot about, you know, ageism a bit, right? And just as, you know, before this whole discussion that we're having today um, with, with, with diversity and inclusion and people of color, you know, there was a Me Too movement that was like, that was like big for a minute. So it's like these shifts every X amount of months or so that seem to happen. And again, like, 
it's like in one ear out the other, which is yeah. unfortunate. Yeah. Hopefully people can circle back, you know, with people who are vocal as well and things that go viral again. Um, well, that's, that's I, the bigger want- problem too, though. Is it, and I apologize. The, the bigger problem is that there's a fear of speaking out, mm-hmm. right? Because there's, because because like there's there's you know you go on fishbowl or you go on all these different communities and you'll see like in private people will have these discussions. Um, so so I challenge people to get out there and actually make noise because if we're all not making noise, then no change will happen. And change doesn't happen with one person. It's like you know these agencies or companies saying we hired a chief diversity officer. Okay, and what? Right, one person doesn't make impact. It's everyone. So I say everyone should be in this moment and live in this moment, own this moment, and be vocal with this moment. Does that even happen, especially when you're entering a new environment? Like you're at a new place, right? Um, have you thought about that? Has that crossed your mind? Of okay, have they brought me in because I am vocal, or you know, am I expected to be a certain way with the culture? I mean, these are things that we have to think about, right? Yeah, I mean, look, let's. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree, right? There's, there's benefits, I believe, on both sides. Um, you know, I can honestly and genuinely say that, like VML YNR, we've been talking since before Christmas, uh, like for, for quite some time now. So it just so happened that that this hit at the time where we were kind of, you know, finishing and ramping things up. And and yeah, I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've been vocal since I guess we started talking. And with me, it's kind of like, you know, what you see is what you get. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a very candid person. I try to be open. And I think that, you know, now over the past five or six months, um, I found this urge and this need to make sure that I'm expressing myself because there's this line, and I'll be honest, there's a line that, 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 that Black people specifically have to tow, right? Not necessarily have to, but we do tow in, in, in the work um, world or environment. It's like this, you know, if I say too much, I'm going to look like the angry black guy. If I say too little, then I don't care. Like, where's the, the, the kind of the line that I should be walking where I feel as though I'm making an impact and helping others that look like me, but also in a manner that makes my, my company feel comfortable. And I think that there are companies now that are like, they're okay with, people standing up and actually saying something. And I've felt the need, you know, recently to, to be one of those people that says, you know what, like, if I don't start this, this, this conversation or engage in this conversation, then who will, and then it will be forgotten. Right. So when I was at TBWA, they were like all for it. I was making noise and we launched the black health now initiative and like so many things. And they were fully behind my back. They were like, this is exactly what needs to be said. And we're completely fine with that. You know, the same thing here at BML YNR that, you know, when, when I came over there, they, they knew about the conversations that I have and will be having. And they, they were a hundred percent behind that. And, and we had conversation before my even starting saying that, Hey guys, you know what you're signing up for. Right. Um, but I've been at places where in, you know, I'll be completely candid places where they didn't appreciate me being out there like that. And then they didn't, you know, they, there was an uncomfort uh, in, in me being such a visible, you know, executive in a team. And, and I have been let go because of that. Well, yeah. I, I mean, you know, for me, it's, um, I've always enjoyed being vocal and standing up um, for something or someone. And it's the, uh, oh, they might not see me as the nice, timid Asian girl anymore. Um, you know, we talked about ageism. So, uh, so that I have to toe as well. Um, but I think, you know, the expectation has, has kind of, um, changed a little bit. I think, especially with people with big Twitter profiles, like, oh, wow, they, they have people, um, who follow them and they say things that resonate. So I think, 
um, things are definitely shifting, especially as creatives and thinkers and doers and dreamers. Um, but I want to, I think that's interesting that you were talking to um, the agency, you know, last year. So can you take me a little bit through that with, um, so did conversations a halt with the pandemic? Um, you know, is that a normal thing, um, you know, nine months later to announce uh, a, a new position from the agency side for such a high profile? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, truth be said, yeah, it was prior to Christmas, we were, we started conversating. And at that time, I had only been at TVWA for like, I don't know, like a, a year and a month or something. So there was a, there was a, there was kind of, I was hesitant. Um, so we, we essentially started a conversation and then that's, it wasn't necessarily interviewing for a position more so than it was like, uh, let's talk and, and just see where things go. I, I met the entire, you know, exec leadership team then, um, things started to pick up a little bit more as we got into January, February, and then, um, it was at that time we kind of just like sketched out what a what a position would look like and how I would work across the organization, um, and literally, and the, yeah, pandemic hit and we continued to talk. It was like, hey, let's just just hold for a second. You know, business is going you know a little sideways. We're putting halts on things, and we just kind of waited, continued to talk, literally almost every week. Um, and it was just a matter of when, and then timing timing just hit. And we 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 made it work. Wow, that's amazing. Um, so did you at some point think I could be laid off like many people, you know, some people are taken by surprise. Um, when I was last year, I was, but you know, there's always that concern with the recession. Yeah, understandably. So I think I was so confident about this move and the, the conversation that we've been having for, for some time, but I, I will put something out there. Right. And, and, and this is something that I wrestled with, with, with saying publicly and, and, but I'll just say it. I've been helping a lot of my friends recently with job opportunities, right? And how I've been helping them is by way of educating them. The same way that I was educated by individuals over the past few months, with truth be told, is the first time I've actually had an opportunity to to have a mentor, right? And people that look like me. And um, what I was told, uh, which I now pass along to others, is the importance of actually having an employment attorney, right? So this is stuff that like, like, like white men have been using for a long time. I knew nothing about it. So usually we get an agreement, we get a contract and it's like, great. I go and sign it and I'm good and I start. And then God forbid at some point I get laid off and then I get two to three weeks payout. The benefit of having these individuals step in is that they, I mean, it is, it's incredible how they can actually help you negotiate your, your, your opportunities, your offer, what your salary looks like, your compensation bonus, your, your, like all that. And even like severance package. So when you talk about like the, the, you know, being laid off, I mean, this is stuff that is done to protect an employee, right? Just as much as it impacts the, uh, uh, excuse me, it helps the, the employer, right? But there's so much power in, in, in having someone who can actually sit down and walk you through this process and make sure that the stuff that you're signing prior to going to a company is, is, is in your best interest. So I recommend that to everyone now. I love that advice. Um, my um, a friend of mine had one for her severance package, and um, thankfully that worked in her favor. Um, oh, yeah. What are some other things that you know you dole out to uh, friends and colleagues? You know, your career spans over twenty years. Um, it, you've been an engineer for a Google project. Um, you've you know kind of. I feel like it's a little bit of pivoting that you've done from doing. Um, 
add products and going into innovation. And then even, you know, joining boards, right? A recent appointment for you was um, with the forays and also with the advertising club. So that networking is always something that I promote and encourage. Um, but what other kind of career tips um, do you share? And that's yeah. Yeah, honestly, I, I always tell people when you start a job, um, find your tribe, right? Find your tribe. Identify the people that 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 you know will have your back, uh, and you, and it's also about identifying those people before you take a job as well, right? because you want to always make sure that you have someone in your corner. Um, so that's number one. The other two thing too is like, you know, when when you find that tribe, it's look, no one's gonna stay at a company for five, six, seven, eight, ten years. It's this is like. It's not like Ford time, right? Like people don't do that anymore. So when you find that tribe, you find these individuals that you're tight with, right? These individuals will travel to other companies and will rest assured, you know, if you're good at what you do, we'll reach back for you when the time is right. I've gone to four different companies with with the same group of people over my career. But through my career, what I've also done too is I made sure that I, to your point, like I always pivoted and went left and right a little bit because I didn't want to focus primarily in one area. I've always felt that if I could be a pentathlete of, of, of the sorts, right, that I'd be able to go into a company and make more impact because I can actually touch more things across the organization. So to your point, like I started my career as a, as a front-end designer and engineer, um, working and building a lot of ad tech stuff. I then moved over to running creative organizations. And then while running these creative organizations for the past like 11, 12 years of my career, I've always led innovation teams within those uh both so i was innovating both on the ad tech side on the publisher side and now on the agency side so i've been able to kind of understand the entire lay of the land in terms of how all these different businesses work the only touch piece i haven't necessarily touched yet is is the brand side yeah but you know you have time there's a recurring theme there of innovation so i'm curious um you know we have peer colleagues and and tribes um, and our bosses, but who do you kind of look up to in the innovation and creative space? Is there somebody that um, you might look up to as a, a mentor? I don't, I don't, I don't. I, there's, there's people, I mean, look, there's most certainly people who I've looked up to over my career who have helped me kind of from a business, business point of view and understanding how to pitch and present. Like I always bring them up, this, this guy, Jason Witt, who, who's chief operating officer at, uh, at um, Operative is uh just like he was always like someone who was always in my corner helped me kind of move up a bit uh in terms of like my you know seniority uh and one of the best pitchmen i've ever sat in a room with so i learned definitely learned a lot from him on that but you know in terms of what inspires me i'll be honest with you i don't look to be inspired by other creatives and other brands and so on and so forth because i think that if you if you follow someone all the time um then your work starts to become very similar to that person, mm-hmm. right? So, so even truth be said, like, so when people say, "Hey, you know, did you check this this new ad out or this new form or this new feature?" Like, I will check things out, but sometimes I I, I don't like to actually dig too deep into something because I don't want it to end up being like this recall thing that I do two weeks later or a month later or so on and so forth, and I build something similar. So, inspiration really f- comes from my walking outside and things that I see on a daily basis, how I interact and engage with people um technology as a whole and watching how that advances those are the things that really kind of get me and really innovation for me comes out of um my my needs like and other people's needs like okay like you know i have this thing you know god i wish it did this instead 
Um, so I, you know, not many people or some people may know, like, you know, I, I invented and patented skippable pre-roll, right? Which is like the, in the bottom of the video, you see the five, four, three, two, one skip. Like that was like eight years ago. <laughs> Didn't know that, right? Uh, that was like eight years ago. Yeah, that was about eight years ago or something. But that, but that, that, beca- that came out because at the time, I, Jason, Jason, wait, my boss was like, we need, you know, we need it. We need to think broadly, right? Like 30, 30 second pre rolls are are great, but we're trying to take TV and move them on these devices, you know, as if they're the same and they're not. Yet we all know that everyone fucking hates thirty second pre rolls because now I'm forced to sit here and watch something I didn't want to watch in the first place. How do we get around that? So I'll tell you something. The first iteration of skippable pre roll was actually I actually called Porta Pass, and we did it for I believe it was for Pepsi. Yes, it's Pepsi, and the idea was you get a thirty second ad that was Pepsi's ad, and in the bottom left hand corner there was a there was a little bottle of Pepsi, right? And across it it said Porta Pass. If you scrolled your mic your your mouse over it. Your mouse turned into the bottle, and then you could pour the soda across the whole video player, right? So video player, you know, fills up. That video player, that experience of that animation took five seconds. And then once it filled up, it went directly into your content that you wanted. So essentially, it was taking a 30-second spot and watching it if you wanted. But if you interacted, your interactivity would take five seconds and allow you to skip forward. I love that you are... Speaking like a true artist and a startup person, right? You're going back to your needs and how you interact. And um, that's that's really cool that, um, you know, a lot of people, I think, um, try to copy something. And I get that from a skills standpoint. Um, but then you have to kind of make it your own. That's that's what you're saying, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's so important. My thing is like, has always been, what is the problem and how do you create a solution for it? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think um, are the problems in the, the creative space right now? Um, it depends on what side of the creative space we're talking about, right? I mean, if we're, if we're focusing on the agency side, it would be uh, the fact that we continue to recycle the same talent from agency to agency. Right. I mean, it's like it happens on the pharma side. It happens on every side. And when you recycle talent, uh, you end up with the same work. Right. There's 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 no real creativity. So so for the agency side, I always tell folks, um, look outside of the agency where look at the ad, te- like look at the ad tech side of the world. Look at the publisher, the brand side. You should be bringing in, you know, talent from completely different ends of the spectrum to come in and help you do what you do for your brands, because it's only then that you'll be able to have a different view uh, and, and, and allow for really creative work to bubble up. Um, if we talk about like from a brand point of view, I think that's, that's, I mean, look, it's interesting to see so many brands now wanting to build agencies within, uh, their own kind of walls, but at the same time, like it's, you know, you've seen plenty of them do it and then they struggle and then they cut it or something of that nature. It's not an easy thing, right. To do, um, you know, so my, 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 my thing there would be just figuring out smarter ways to actually, you know, get in some of the right talent, but also smarter ways to, to, to partner with some of these agencies. And then as we look at creative from a whole, the entire industry, I think the biggest problem, uh, a bigger problem is the fact that we continue to work in silos, right? So the, a great example, right? Like creative agency, media agency, and the publisher. Let's talk about creating an ad, Right. Nine times out of 10, most ads that we see, right, are shit. And the reason why they're shit is because there's no communication going across the board. So brand goes to agency, creative agency, 
with an RFP, creative agency comes up with an idea. Great. We love this. Now we're going to start building whatever, a site or something, an app or whatever to do it. Um, then the brand goes and takes that RFP with some of our ideas baked into it over to the media agency. Media agency just gives a shit about reach and scale. So they say, <laughs> okay, well, we're going to pull the lever on this programmatic ads, which for the record are only pumping out IAB standard ads. And when is the last time you remember seeing an IAB standard ad? Probably can't. Right, because it's something called banner blindness. No one gives a shit about them. So we're getting people, but we're getting people with ads that no one's looking for, looking at. And then you might get people who say, "Hey, well, you know, we it's it's moat, and you know, it's like yeah, it's viewability, but like just because it's on my screen doesn't mean I even give a shit or even looked at it." And then the third part now is that ad is getting sent over to the publisher, and maybe at the tail end of this process, the publisher gets the opportunity to talk to a brand. Brand tells them the idea, but they have a week or two to pull the lever on doing anything cool. So they try to go left, may or may not work, most of the time doesn't, and then we all end up running this shitty ad, right? But <laughs> that was a, I apologize, I was drawing out. But my point I'm getting to is that imagine if the three of us came together, right? Because if we start to talk about data, like creative, in order to make creative work really well today, you have to have data, right? So it's data and innovation and design, all three of those buckets working under one thing to create experiences that matter for people, right? So now if you actually had the brand say, guys, let's figure this out together, creative agency could potentially even lead and work directly with the media agency and the publisher because majority of the data that actually works in advertising is coming from the media side anyways then there needs to be just a better connection with you between the three. So that's just my rambling on, on all those sides. No, the ramble shows, um, it, it demonstrates your point because it's like all these steps and processes and where's the collaboration, right? Where's the diversity of thought that comes in when you are not siloed? So I, I hear your point. I hear your point. Um, as we wrap up here, who are you, um, you know, looking forward to maybe, uh, speaking at brand week or just reconnecting with there are so many speakers as you said um you know anything kind of jump out to you with um you know whether it's hearing about what driller is up to from a tech standpoint or um you know what other colleagues might say about a career playbook yeah, to be honest with you, I'm I'm looking forward to a lot of it. I mean, I think Ryan Reynolds should be really interesting to understand what he's doing with uh, with Mint Mobile and, and, and aviation. I think that he's had a really interesting approach to how he's been doing a lot of his work with them. I mean, down to like, I don't even know if you've seen someone posted on LinkedIn at, like a couple weeks ago, his uh, his reply email, a screenshot yeah. of that. Did you see that? <laughs> like, like, which was g- genius. But the th- like, my, 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 like, what is so genius about that? It was like that's taking every moment of an ex- of, of an engagement with someone and or a brand and turning it into an experience for somebody, right? Like he used his return email to actually continue the messaging, which is like smart on a super yeah. simple level and things that people aren't thinking about. So, so more certainly, um, you know, folks like that, I mean, I think it'd be interesting to, to uh, hear more from uh, what I think is Julian Dun- uh, Duncan from, yes. uh, from Jaguars to understand, like, cause like, we talk about COVID and like hand on hand and like, okay, so like that, that's, that's going to be a real issue, right. With, with these folks that are out here and playing with each other uh, and being each other's face. Uh, so it'd be interesting to kind of talk about like how they plan on kind of marketing and, and working with other brands and so on and so forth. Um, but, but, you know, but of course I'm going to have to give my own a shout out. Like I, it'll be, I'm excited to talk to Laura, uh, chief executive officer at Havas, who, who will be chatting with me. And I think that 
we're we'll be having a really interesting conversation about the the, the kind of creative world and, and the landscape of these agencies and 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 how we're moving the needle where the needle needle should be headed so on and so forth so don't want to give too much of it away but it's yeah. gonna be it'll be fun <laughs> well that is friday uh 1 to 2 the shifting creative landscape uh walter t Keir the third thank you so much for your energy your insight and um your creativity and for joining us um for the first time on our podcast Thank you. I appreciate it and, and look forward to more, hopefully. Uh, so, so again, thank you for your time. Of course. We'll be right back. 70% of marketers spend more time producing digital advertising content than they like. Don't be one of them. Find out how creative automation can help. Learn how at Celtra.com. That's C-E-L-T-R-A dot com. We have an interview with... Mary Emily O'Hara in conversation with the Equal Justice Institute, our brand save winner of this year. Take a listen. Um, well, it's an honor to speak with you today. Um, I have learned a lot about your work over the past week, just every from the films and the books to you being called the Mandela of this generation, which is quite an, an honor. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask first, because I know that the film and the HBO documentary are are very high profile. Um, So my first question is, do you often meet people that were introduced to your work, learned about your work through um, Just Mercy or the HBO documentary? And, And if so, how... How did they respond to you? And, you know, do you meet like young people on the street who come up and say, "Hey, I know who you are because I saw this movie." What What is that experience usually like for you? Yeah, well, I do. I mean, I think the book, in particular, um, just because the movie's been out, um, hasn't been out as long, has mm-hmm. definitely generated that kind of reaction. A lot of colleges adopted the book as their freshman read, and so. I do go places all the time where people recognize me, and and, um, and it's usually very positive and affirming. They want a picture, or they express something, you know, really nice about um, how a book helped them think differently about these issues. Um, and um, you know, the same is true of the movie. I mean, I'm not—I am in the movie, but only in a little second at the end. So it doesn't create the same recognition visually and you know the movie came out in January and played through February into early March and then we were in this pandemic mode so it was getting really tricky uh, uh, out there in late February after people had seen the film mm-hmm. because it had been out and about less over the last you know five months that mm-hmm. hasn't been much as much of the issue but yeah I think we also run a museum and memorial here in Montgomery and here locally uh-huh. You know, we've had hundreds of thousands of people come to the sites, and, and, and people do come up all the time. But it's very affirming, and it's very, um, you know, it's very interesting because throughout most of my career, um, you know, we were trying to be actually fairly covert. I've often told people my work was not unlike the work of Harriet Tubman, where you're trying to get people to freedom through an underground railroad, we often believed that media attention was not going to be helpful for our clients. And so we didn't actually 
attract much attention. We tried to avoid that. But uh, about 10 years ago, I did realize that to, to, to make the kind of change we wanted, we were going to have to be more public, mm. more outward-facing, and that the process that led me to write the book and do the movie and the documentary and a lot of the other public-facing things we've done in the last decade. What was it that made you realize that you did need to do more public-facing and media work? Well, in many ways, it was just reflecting on where we are. I'm a product of Brown versus Board of Education. I grew up at the end of Jim Crow in a community where black kids couldn't go to the public schools. I started my education at a colored school. Mm -hmm. There were no high schools for black kids in our county when my dad was a teenager. And these lawyers came in and made them open up the public schools by enforcing the Supreme Court ruling in Brown versus Board of Education. I was told that if I did all the right things and worked hard, that that ruling uh, would get me the equality and justice I sought. And so I became very intrigued by the power of law, the rule of law, because if you had a vote in our county to end on whether to end racial segregation, we would not have won that vote. It was a majority white county, and the political preference was to maintain racial segregation, but the legal requirement was equal rights, equal educational opportunities. And I've always been um, drawn to the power of the law to protect the disfavored, uh, the, the disempowered, the disenfranchised. And when you represent people in jails and prisons, you realize that um, you're going to need that commitment to the rule of law. And so that's what I've been doing throughout most of my career. But about 10, 12 years ago, you know, I had this deep and growing concern. The political environment had shifted so much that I don't think we could win Brown versus Board of Education today. I'm not sure mm-hmm. our court today would do something that disruptive on behalf of a disfavored group. I don't know that they would force the kind of political change and overcome the kind of resistance that Brown generated. And that's when I realized we were going to have to get outside the court to create an environment that supports the rule of law, that supports equality and justice in a way that um, uh, that happened in the 1950s. And I just think creating the right environment for fairness and justice and reform and equality became a higher priority, and no one was actively trying to do that in the way that I thought needed. So that's what kind of pushed me out of the court. We still do the legal work, obviously, and that's still our focus, but that's when we started doing reports on slavery and lynching and segregation. It's when I decided to do a TED Talk, and that then led to the book, and I started doing a lot more media and engaging in public discourse. Um, we put out a calendar, we started doing markers, and then in 2018 we opened this museum and memorial, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. was very public-facing. So, But it was all rooted in that, in that recognition that we were going to have to change the environment outside the courts to facilitate, um, to foster the kind of um, commitment to justice that we think is needed. And, of course, that has changed so much over the course of this year, so <laughs> this year alone has just, we. I feel like the progress has been 
I mean, I know for, for advocates like yourself who have been working on these issues for decades, it doesn't seem like anything happens quickly, right? But it does seem as if there was just a major shift kind of all at once, like suddenly everything sort of caught up to a certain place. Do you feel like something significant has changed? And I also wanted to ask you, the second part of that question is, how can racial justice advocates keep up the momentum of this moment here in 2020 so that it doesn't fade and just go back to being sort of on the back burner? Well, I do think the kind of progress that um, is required is the kind of progress that, you know, has to navigate hills and valleys. I mean, I think for a lot of us, we feel like we've been pushing a boulder up a very steep hill for a really long time. But when you get to the top of that hill, for a moment, uh, the next half mile can feel really exciting because the momentum and the gravity and the uh, topography uh, allows you to cover a lot of distance in a really short period of time. But you are going back down, and eventually you'll hit another valley, another plateau, and you're going to have to push back up again. I think what's exciting to me about this moment is that uh, a lot more people are pushing. Uh, there's a clarity uh, that you achieve when you get to the top of that mountain that allows you to see how uh, urgent and necessary reform is how critically important it is that we all get to something that feels more like freedom and equality. Mm -hmm. And if others kind of get behind you, um, you'll have momentum, you'll have that gravity, but you'll also have the resources and capacity that when you have to push up again, you can make that work. And so I, I do think um, we have to be strategic and tactical. Uh, I mean, what we're trying to do in this country around uh, racial justice and racial equity around ending over-incarceration is hard and, and somewhat unprecedented in that uh, I look at what happened in South Africa and there was a transfer, transfer of power after apartheid because uh, South Africa is a black majority nation. People got the right to vote. They were going to shape the truth. In Rwanda, after the genocide, there was a military intervention, and so you had a military regime empowered to enforce new protections for the group that had been victimized. Mm -hmm. Germany lost the war. Had Germany won the war, you wouldn't see the reckoning with the Holocaust. You wouldn't see the memorials and the stones and the monuments and the symbols. Um, and that um, defeat facilitated kind of a period of transition and truth-telling. Uh, we haven't had that in the United States. The North won the Civil War, the South won the Narrative War, and there's not been a shift in power. So we're having to facilitate change through um, tactics, through engagement that is diverse. Dr. King used nonviolence very effectively in the 1950s and 60s. And I think what we now need to do are use all of the narrative tools available to us uh, to get people to acknowledge the wrongfulness of racial inequality. When you go to the Holocaust Museum, you get to the end and you're motivated to say never again. Well, we haven't created cultural spaces in America that motivate us to say never again 
to racial inequality, to racial injustice, because we've never made that statement or made that commitment to continue to accept new manifestations. And so for me, things like the book and the movie and the museum and the memorial are all tools to push our nation to reckon more honestly. And we have to do it without the ability to... um, use our superior power to force it because we don't have that. We have to push people. We have to compel people. We have to persuade people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and that's where, you know, all of the narrative tools become so important. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it, narrative tools. Um, and then, of course, just being Ad Week, we do cater to the advertising community. So our readers are largely employed at major brands or ad agencies or marketing firms. Um, and and that is such a vital part of the narrative. So many people, especially younger people who have really lost faith in our leadership, in our political leadership, now look to brands on places like Twitter and Instagram to reflect their political values, which is why I think we saw so many corporations and, and brands tweeting about Black Lives Matter and Blackout Day and Juneteenth and stuff like that for the first time really this year, um, really leaning into um, political ideologies that they've shied away from in the past. And I just wanted to briefly ask you about that. Um, If there's things that you think that this realm of brands and advertising and corporate business can do to continue to push forward progress on on racial justice. Yeah. Is, well, I is there anything the in particular that you would want to see as well? Yeah. Sorry well, I think. That. Yeah. No problem. I think the problem all along um, has been that we have been complacent. We've just accepted things that are really unacceptable. We've absorbed so much injustice and equality and police violence and some people shake their heads and some people say that's a shame but we don't actually see it as something that we are obligated to address and what's been exciting about this moment is that people have come to recognize that our long history of racial injustice has created a sort of smog in the air and we're all going to be unhealthy if we continue to breathe this toxic Uh, air created by this long history, and these toxins are not going to dissipate on their own. We're going to have to clean the air. We're going to have to do the environmental work necessary to create a healthy environment. And I think that's been the starting point for a lot of companies and corporations. They now realize that their continued silence about uh, racially motivated violence, about bigotry, about these tragic disparities that you see between black communities and white communities. But their silence is, is, has sustained in many ways the lack of action, the lack of response, the lack of justice. And so they can no longer be silent. And that's very exciting. I think my, my number one uh, piece of advice uh, for companies and corporations and people who are entering in this space without having spent a lot of time in it is that, you know, learning is an action item. You know, to learn is to take action. And we have so much to learn. It's the reason why we put out a calendar. We have a daily calendar that just educates people about the history of racial injustice. If you don't think of uh, of the United States as a post-genocide society uh, because mm-hmm. of what happened to indigenous people and Europeans 
came, you're not going to appreciate the problems with our failure to acknowledge and address uh, the plight of indigenous people. If you don't understand the brutality and the tragedy of human trafficking and, and, and enslavement uh, that defined this country for two and a half centuries, you're not going to appreciate why the legacy of slavery uh, continues to manifest itself. And uh, if you don't know about the thousands of lynchings, if you don't know that millions of black people fled the American South, if you don't understand that the demographic geography of America was shaped by racial terror and violence, uh, that the black people in Cleveland and Chicago and Detroit aren't there as immigrants looking for new economic opportunities, but they're there as refugees and exiles from terrorism in the American South. Without an understanding of these things, you're not going to be equipped uh, to respond appropriately. We have wealth disparities in America because of what banks did in the 1950s. We um, have uh, been acculturated to accept uh, this world that looks at America through a very... Um, uh, a very uh, biased uh, portal. I was I, I did an essay um, for a new book of photographs by Gordon Parks, who was mm-hmm. a renowned photographer who did a series of photographs for Life magazine. And um, I went through these um, magazines from the 1950s, and the ad advertisements just tell such a distorted story of who is that. All of the ads depict these white families. They're all uh, happy. They're all, but they're all of a particular type. And and you get the impression that this is America. Mm-hmm. And there's no reference, no acknowledgement of people of color, of immigrant communities, of the diversity of America. And if that's what you consume, then you actually don't think critically about how you're marketing things and what you're saying and how you're dealing with things. And so I think this learning this history becomes really, really, really important. Uh, when you understand that the great evil of American slavery was this idea that black people are less deserving, less capable, less worthy than white people, was this idea of racial hierarchy, then you then you, then you understand the problem with uh, racial identities that reinforce that racial hierarchy, uh, master-servant, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, you know, we've seen some adjustments in things like uh, these brands, uh, Uncle Ben's Rice and Aunt Jemima. And, and what was problematic is that they were embracing this mindset of a racial hierarchy. And mm-hmm. when you do that, you contribute to the problem. You legitimate uh, the status quo. Mm-hmm. And you can't do that. You know, uh, I remember when they started advertising for security systems and, you know, it would be, you know, middle-class white families in their home and black and brown uh, burgers trying to break in. And it tapped into it, fed a kind of politics of fear and anger. And when you allow yourself to be governed by the politics of fear and anger, you tolerate things you should never tolerate. You accept things you should never accept. And if you go over the history of advertising in this country over the last 75 years, you'll see a lot of things that were said and done that were um, horrific, that should never have been deemed acceptable or tolerable. Mm-hmm. 
and stepping out of that, that's part of this reckoning. So learning that history and then committing to truth-telling about that history, I think is really important. I'd love to see ad agencies with uh, with legacies that with histories that date back into the early 20th century confront their history and and identify and, and talk about the ways in which their ads contribute to this notion, this narrative of racial difference, this idea of white supremacy, these uh, frames of yeah. um, of race being the other. Oh, that that would be a fascinating conference or panel at minimum. <laughs> and, yeah. and and one that, if you don't mind, I'd like to take that idea and, and go to my bosses and say, we should do this. Because, well, um, I mean, I really, I think it's really <laughs> key because the truth-telling then creates a new consciousness about remedy and repair and about how you have to move forward. It creates a new commitment to not replicating that decision-making. We actually have a whole program on this that we are pushing institutions to commit to truth and justice work. That actually, what you just said about this, the program where you get com, uh, institutions to commit, um, I realize that we only have a few more minutes. Uh, I did really quickly just want to ask you some things about the way the Equal Justice um, Initiative is, is branded, because, again, it being Ad Week, and these are such strange questions, I know, given <laughs> given the, the actual mission of the work that you do. But... Um, you know, I know that there's the racial injustice calendar. There's books, apparel, accessories, the um, the memorial, and the museum. I was just curious how much of um, basically like profits from sales in terms of products, the museums, the um, the memorial. How much of that kind of stuff contributes to the work that the nonprofit does versus? you know, the, the things that usually fund nonprofits, grants and donations. Do, do you find that sort of branding has has increased visibility? Has it increased income that funds the nonprofits' work? Like, I was just curious about the relationship there. Yeah, well, it, it certainly has. I think opening the museum and the memorial has just been, it, it's created a new relationship with the local community because we've had a huge impact on local sales tax revenue. You know, seven to 50,000 people have come to the site in the first 15 mm-hmm. months, which had a huge impact on the local economy. There's hotels being built. The airport's had its best year ever. And um, wow. that just changes your relationship with the, with the business community. But also when people come, see the sites, they're kind of engaging with us. Less the revenue from the merchandise or the admissions to the site, to people learning about the work and then wanting to support it philanthropically. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, our budget has gone way up because obviously to build these sites costs money and to run them, well, our staff size has doubled in the last uh, three years. But um, uh, we see that effort as the work. So, you know, we do criminal justice reform work and we do racial justice work and we see getting people in the sites and educating people about this history as the substance of the work. And it's been terrific that... Uh, that also has generated um, some people, motivated some people to support us in ways that um, that, that they hadn't previously. Great. Um, and then, because you do have to go in a minute, I just wanted to ask if there anything else that you want to add about this interesting relationship that we're talking about here between 
the work you do and the mission behind it and sort of the the branding, the advertising, and whether Equal Justice Initiative has any work coming up in terms of corporate partnerships or anything like that? Well, we do think a lot about how to engage people. I mean, I've always believed that for the kind of work we're trying to do, we have to go where people are. We have to understand where they are and what's blocking them from moving. And then we have to find ways to persuade them to move to where we think they should be. And and advertising is really built on that, that same principle. Nobody says, you know, best drink in the world, drink it or you are a fool or something like that. They have to engage people. They have to understand what people want in a drink or a detergent or soap and and make it seem like something that they should want. And that's going to where the consumer is. And it's the same way in the justice space. We have to go to where jurors are. We have to go where judges are. We have to go where policymakers are. We have to go with where average people are and persuade. And, and that shaped the way we talk, the way we present, the way we, um, you know, uh, create uh, an identity. Um, I mean, we want everybody to come to our sites. They're not mm-hmm. for black people or white people or young people or old people. We think everybody should benefit from this. We want everybody to reject uh, the the inequality that's created by racial injustice. We want mm-hmm. everybody to commit to truth and justice. Uh, we want everybody to be free. And that orientation helps us um, think about what's effective and what's not effective. And it's not dissimilar to what I think ad agencies and advertising agencies do. And now um, we're going to be encouraging those same entities, um, uh, marketers and, and brand agents and advertising, to be thinking about what they can do to help in pushing the country uh, to a more honest place, to a reckoning with this legacy of, of inequality and um, and injustice. And, and I'm excited only because if we use the creativity and the skill and mm-hmm. the um, brilliance that has come out of advertising over the last several decades around certain brands, and we direct some of that talent and ability toward confronting racial injustice and racial inequality, uh, there's no limit to what we can achieve, and, and we really can make this moment the kind of movement that lands us someplace that we've needed to be for a very long time. So beautifully put. Thank you so much. It's It's been inspiring and engaging to speak with you and, and some of the the quotes that will come out of this. I mean, you just have such a beautiful way of simplifying these issues and and relaying the the overall mission and the urgency. So I just really appreciate you giving us your time and Terrific. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I hope to one day be able to visit the museum and the memorial once all of this calms down. Yeah, that would be great. We'd love to have you visit. Great. Well, thank you so much and have a wonderful day. Thanks so much for tuning in. We will be back next week. Don't forget to leave us a review or a rating and share the podcast with anyone in the industry, a friend, a loved one. You can also send us an email at adweek at podcast.com. My name is Ko M. Have a great week. This episode was produced by yours truly, edited by Lane McGivney with music by home.
Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan.